0: Good morning, and as a reminder, uh, boy, our God delights when we sing to him things that are true of him, and uh, we just did, and he just did. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and as I, uh, some of you don't know this, but I'm a little bit of a history buff. Uh, I'm not a scholar, I know that's surprising, but I've always loved history. It was the one course that I loved, even in my uh, uh, high school and P.E. and health rigorous studies, I still loved history, and I would call it a miniature history buff, and so I follow a couple of people that writes blogs about history, and, and one of them is sort of weird, things in American history, and this week I had read some of that, and and then as I studied Acts 2, I, I thought of a connection all week. So, I was reading this thing in history about the 1930s uh, during the Depression, and during the Depression, work was hard to come by, so also was food. Food was a, a priority and a necessity, and 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 it reminded me of a kid growing up in Selma, North Carolina, hearing my dad tell stories. He was a great storyteller, and uh, how he grew up in the early years of the Depression, and how they used to have to get food. The The, the things they did to get food, obviously there was the obvious fishing, and hunting, and squirrels, and rabbits, and possums and those kind of things. There was milking the cow stories, you remember, but it was more than that. You've heard them where they milk a cow and have two five-gallon buckets and they walk 92 miles barefoot in the snow to get to the cow and back, you know, all those, right? Uh, I thought unique ones, a couple of them were finding beehives. They would go hunting for beehives to knock it down without protective clothing to get the honey. So, no wonder he was scared to death of wasp, and no wonder in bees, and no wonder I am too. Oh every time I see a bee, right? Uh, in addition, my his dad, who I called Papa toy, and let me just tell you how the patents are genius. Papa toy was born on Christmas Day, so they named him what Toy. Anybody else ever met a toy patent or toy? Thank you. Patents right there, we got it so. <laughs> So, he was an SBI agent, State Bureau of Investigation, and they had a lot of liquor steals back in the day, and they would let him off in the middle of the night. He knew upstate South Carolina like the back of his hand, every rock and nook and cranny, and he'd let him off, and through the night, he would not only find the steal, but he would capture the people by gunpoint who were running the steal by dawn. wonder where I get my love for the woods pop a toy. But guess how they would pay him? They would pay him in salted ham and bacon and meat and other non-perishables. Food was a big deal. Fat back, biscuit, molasses three times a day. Not bad. Not bad, right? The need for food in American history during the Depression became the seed for one of the wildest cultural phenomena during that time. Dance marathons. (laughs) You heard of those? People would sign up for them. People would come to see them, pay a little bit of a fee, and the sponsors would take that fee and pay the people in food. Food became the hope, the motivation to endure for a day, a week, and even months at a time to keep dancing. Now, when I thought about our passage, I had very tender moments this week studying this passage. Man, I thought about our disciples, the apostles. There had to be some struggle with depression. The Lord Jesus had left them, but he had promised, so it was a little bit of hope, right? But what we're going to read about today, the coming of the Spirit of God, the birth of the church, is for, was for them and is for us biblical hope, this certainty that God will do what he says he will do no matter our circumstances here to give us hope to endure faithfully. So John Stott puts it this way, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church and the people of God without the spirit is dead. The goal is always It's not information, it's always transformation. Today's text says transformation is really, really possible. So this morning I want to set it up this way. I want to look at the Pentecostal preparation, the phenomena, the preaching, and then the production. So let me read verse 1 to us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. As a reminder, uh, verse 1 takes us back and it tells us, first of all, that uh, the details of Pentecost has a long shadow or echoes completely in the Old Testament. And if you come to Acts 2 and you just think this is just a bunch of charismatic activity, right? We tend to read Acts 2 with, we become a a phobia we're afraid of anything charismatic or cares. Mania, maybe how you put it, where we go crazy. But Acts 2 is telling us here that there is charismatic activity, but you miss the point if you don't see that this wasn't plan B from God. God had planned this the entire time, and the Old Testament speaks to that. First of all, the word Pentecost comes from the Old Testament. It is a word that means 50th. It comes from what was called one of Israel's feasts, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. You can read about that in Exodus 23 and 24, uh, I believe Deuteronomy 16, and certainly Leviticus 23. Israel celebrated the Feast of Pentecost for over 1,500 years, and here it is happening. Pentecost also is referred to as the Feast of Pentecost because it's celebrated 50 days after the Passover when God gave the Israelites the law. We know this as we, we the Passover, certainly familiar in the Old Testament where uh, God passed over houses that had the blood of the lambs on the doorposts. The Passover feast is a shadow of the death of Christ, and we know that Christ died on the exact Passover day as the ultimate and final lamb, sacrificial lamb. And the Feast of Pentecost has a similar shadow. It is the Feast of First Fruits has a shadow of fulfillment that has way more to do than with grain and harvest. It is the dawning of a new era in salvation history. John Stott puts it this way. He says, yes, there is a harvest of 3,000 souls and that was the first fruits of the Christian mission. So you see the connection to the Old Testament. Many times the Old Testament spoke of the coming Spirit of God. The prophet Jeremiah is probably the classic one. Jeremiah 31 says it this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is a long time before Pentecost. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Why? Verse 34 tells us, For then they shall know me, not just know about me, Not just have the law of God written on a stone tablet, but literally inside of them. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I love, though, how Ezekiel 39 puts it. They will forget their shame for their unfaithfulness they show to me. For I will pour out my spirit on them. The devil, Satan himself, shames God's people to death. And Ezekiel says when the spirit of God comes, they will forget their shame. They won't deny that they have been unfaithful to the God of the universe like we all have. But their shame will not destroy them. Man, if that don't encourage you, but check your pulse. John the Baptist predicted it in Matthew 3. Jesus predicted the coming of the Spirit in John 7. And again, after the ascension in Acts 1. So Pentecost, we need to know the Pentecost of preparation was not plan B. It was not a response to any preconditions. God had planned it from eternity past. So Pentecost is a unique and special historical redemptive event In salvation history, and I say, Oh, the grace of our God. Huh? So, Pentecostal preparation. Secondly, in our text is the Pentecostal phenomena. Let me read verses two through four. Verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we are told in Acts 1 there are 120 followers of Christ together together in this upper room supposedly in a, in a home and it says, suddenly a noise like a mighty Russian wind came upon them with divided tongues resting on each one of them. Notice, it was like a, uh, suddenly a noise like a Russian wind. It wasn't a Russian wind. It wasn't a time to, for a long-haired gal to be a model and get her hair blown back in pictures, right? It was a sound. Here's what we know. When Represents the spirit of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament word for wind is breath, and we see that at the get go. Where in Genesis 1? The breath of God is the language we see in Genesis 1. So, what happened in Genesis 1 is the power of the word of God and the breath of God are tied together, especially in creation. Ezekiel 37 is another beautiful example. If you remember, there's a there's a metaphor. And the metaphor is a bunch of dead, dry bones laying in a valley. And what does God do? A mighty wind comes, the mighty breath of God comes, and he brings resurrection life to these dead bones, which is a metaphor for what he does for a dead person, non-Christian, when he brings us to Christ through the Spirit of God. So here we see the wind, Spirit The wind or spirit on the people of God, creating something new in them, in God's people that are being restored and giving them new life under a new covenant. What's happening here is the Holy Spirit is putting together or consecrating a new temple where God will reside. No longer a temple that's made by stone or made by hand, but it is in the very hearts of the people. Where God will dwell with his people. Just this past week, Jen and I were doing our Bible reading. Again, we're way behind, but there's no shame because we're still going. And some of you haven't. We're going. Oh, I just did some shame there. Sorry. (laughs) But in that, we were reading about the intricate details of the Ten of Meeting, right? The worship place that would house the Ark of the Covenant where the Spirit of God would dwell they had to build it. It was immaculate. It was a thousand details. And here God says, that is all changing here. And then in verse 3, it says, tongues of fire resting on each person. Here's what we know about fire in the Old Testament. It, It represents certainly God's presence, God's power. Oftentimes it represents His judgment, but it also represents grace. Remember what God did with Moses and the people of Israel. He said, he put a pillow of fire by them so that he may lead his people through the wilderness to the promised land. That's grace. Notice the details Luke goes into. He says, that spirit rested on each one there. Why is that important? Well, it's important because as a Jew, they would understand the spirit of God that would not rest on each Jewish person, but would rest on just a few, primarily the prophets. And it would not only rest on them, but it would leave them. And it all depended on how God wanted to do his thing. It was not permanent, nor was it universal. So here he says, something is changing. I love what happens, this scenario, if you would, in Numbers chapter 11. You can read it on your own. But Joshua's son said to Moses, these two guys over here, they're prophesying. Make them stop. Spirit of God had obviously landed on a couple guys. And what does Moses say? I love this. Moses says, and we understand why he would say this. I wish that the Lord would put his spirit on all of his people. <laughs> if I'm Moses, I'm saying the same thing because they're crazy, God. Mm-hmm. They say on one second, Lord, we will do all that you say. We will obey you. Yes, sir. And eight seconds later, they're acting like us. Complete cray craze, right? And Moses, yeah, give them the spirit because it would be a lot easier to lead these two million of your people. Part of the phenomena here is this the new covenant spirit indwelling is for every single Christian. Matter of fact, when you come to Christ, not a second blessing, not after you earn it, not after you start growing, not after you start obeying in certain areas, but at the very moment that you place your trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. The scriptures teach that the spirit of God comes to indwell permanently in you. It is what actually makes you a Christian. Paul says without the spirit of God, you don't know God. If you get that down, the permanence that he is with you, it will be a game changer. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson put it. He said, The tongues of fire were a baptism of grace instead of judgment because Jesus had extinguished the fire of judgment on the cross. God gave them tongues of a flame to inflame the church to be its witnesses. I love that. Verse 4 said, They spoke in other languages. That's not the same as tongues that is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 or 14. This word tongue here is glossa for language. And it says, as a result of the Holy Spirit, they began to speak. So, the miracle here of languages must be understood. It is crucial to really understand the whole passage. So, let me read verses 5 through 11 for us. It says, now there there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parinthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesotho... Say it. Thank you. I knew that. I've been practicing all weekend. <laughs> I did it right the first service, but y'all make me nervous looking at me. <laughs> Judea, Cappadocia. Is that right? Thank you. Pontus, Asia. Here we go. Phrygia. Thank you. And Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and And Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all are amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They are filled with new wine. I want us to notice here, Jerusalem is slam full of Jews. Some have said one million, at least a million people. And they really come from all over the world. These Jews, they had been dispersed and scattered in the Assyrian captivity and then later in the Babylonian invasion. They had come back in some ways from the four corners of the world to Jerusalem to celebrate the two, two of the three main feasts. Every year, Passover and then Feast of Pentecost, a normal occurrence for Jews doing that. And verse 5 is really critical, again, for us to understand this. It says, men from every nation and ethnicity under heaven, although they were Jew, they had lived as a foreigner, had been dispersed. A restoration of Israel was happening here. A regathering of Israel after being spread out all over the world. The Old Testament prophets spoke candidly about that. Secondly, what we have here is not only this theme of regathering of the Jews, but it is a starting fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. That says, "...and in you all the families of the earth shall be..." what." blessed. It's happening here. When I read that, I thought amazing how God wove those two Old Testament promises promises perfectly here in Acts 2. And then in verses 6-8, through as seemingly cray-cray as the moment was, it progressed and it poured out of the upper room out, most say out into the temple court uh, where the home was located close to. It was a grand, huge area. And there were at least all my readings said at least 100,000, if not 200,000 people there. Again, you got to imagine there's a million or more people packed in town. Now, there's 100,000, 200,000 in the court. There are Jews everywhere, from everywhere. And we are told the crowd is marveling at what they saw and what they are hearing because the Galilean apostles were speaking in their native tongue. Probably Aramaic, but the crowd was hearing it in their native language. It's me speaking in English. You're all from France, and you're hearing me in French. How cool would that be? Parlez-vous français? It's your sweet montagne. Thank you very much. My question is, or uh, as F.F. Bruce says, he says, this is not a speaking miracle. This is a hearing miracle. How did they know, though? I get curious when I study text. How did they know that these were Galileans? Did they have a sign around them? Galilean? Did they have a little lapel that said Galilean? Did they have a tattoo on the forehead that said G? <laughs> no. You remember when Jesus had been arrested and this young girl comes up to Peter and he says, I know you were Jesus and the reason I know is because your accent, you're one of them, you sound like a Galilean. What did Peter say? No, he denied it. Galileans had an accent, folks. As so I did some further research, these people are hearing their own language but are astonished that the language that they're hearing in their own native language comes from, and this is what historian said, like a Louisiana gargle language. Remember Coach O a few years ago back for the LSU football team? At the end of every interview, he would say what? Gold Tigers. You, you see reality TV shows of people from Louisiana, and they say, let's go down to the swamp and kill us an alligator. Shoot them, Elizabeth. Remember that? <laughs> I was like, ah, I, I get it. <laughs> Folks from Galilee, it was, it was they were from hillbilly paradise. They are backwoods, overalls. It's a dead giveaway that they are not Jerusalemites, Okay? And then verses 9 through 11. Here we are given what is called the Old Testament table of nations found in Genesis 10 and 11. It's really a genealogy of the sons of Noah. And in short, it's the biblical depiction of the known world. It's not the entire world, but it is what is the known world at that time. And as we read through these cities, Luke is making this, how do I put it, this geographical Sweep from east to west. It's no random list, very, very intentional. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, that's Iran. Mesopotamia, that's Iraq. Judea is Israel. Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia Minor, and Phrygia and Pamphila is Turkey. And you got Egypt, Libya, Italy, Greece, Saudi Arabia, Yemen. Here's how F.F. F. Bruce puts it. He says, these were the lands of the earliest dispersion to which the exiles from the 10 northern tribes of Israel have been deported by Assyria in the 7th and 8th centuries. They are all coming back. Along, he mentions, just so we know our crowd, proselytes. Proselyte was a Gentile who had made a full conversion to Judaism. Again here, the Abrahamic, covenant is being fulfilled, Genesis 12. And then verse 11 makes us ask the question, what message are they hearing in their own language? Our text says the mighty deeds of God. Most scholars say they're hearing something like they heard from Stephen in Acts 7, where Stephen told of salvation history and the great works of God. That's about as far as we can take it. And then in verse 12 and 13 we see that we get two responses from this chaotic event. One is (laughs) they ask a question. They're curious. What in the world does all this mean? That's one of the responses we're going to get when we talk about Christ. What? What does all that mean? Secondly, they got mockery. And I promise you that's another response we're going to get when we talk about Christ. These what they're saying is these backwood hillbilly Galileans, they're drunk. It they might be true of Galileans, okay? But it's not true of the apostles, especially Jews. Jews would not drink for breakfast, okay? They haven't eaten breakfast yet. There is no Holy Ghost cocktail party going on in Acts 2. One writer put it this way, the Galatians or the Galileans were not drunk. It was the unbelieving nation of Israel who were drunk through their own unbelief. A couple of wrap-up points we need to take away from this section. One is, we see here the gospel does not go anywhere without Pentecost. The giving of the Holy Spirit is just as much of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and at the resurrection. What happened at Pentecost Pentecost, is unique. It's so unique and special, it's unrepeatable. Would you ever think of repeating the crucifixion and the resurrection? No. It's a one-time event. Secondly, and I thought this was encouraging... Remember Babel from Genesis 11, where the nations and tongues, uh, here the nations and tongues are no longer scattered, but now they're united in the gospel as the gospel of Christ goes out in all languages. I love how D.A. Carson made this point. He says, The coalition of pride at Babel was shattered by the Lord's confusing of the rebels' tongues, thereby scattering the human race over the whole earth in Pentecost, signaled the reversal of this judgment drawing together a people from every nation under heaven not to erect a monument to their own pride but to glorify God for his work of salvation. Pentecost fully equipped God's people to be on mission and if it were not for Pentecost, you and I would not be sitting here today not only forgiven but fully prepared for the change he needs to do in us for the ministry he wants us to be a part of and to be on board with his mission. So we got the Pentecostal preparation, the Pentecostal phenomenon. We have the Pentecostal preaching in verses 14 through 21. So here in this section, we get to see the outside of Jesus, the first sermon in the new Testament, the Jews remember it asked his question in, in verse 12, what does it all mean And my man, Peter, for anybody I'm liking the scripture more than anybody, it's Peter. They love to step up and say something, but sometimes he says bad things. You know what I mean? He can't pronounce cities and all that stuff. (laughs) But he steps up here, man. He boldly answers their question. And here's what he does. What Luke has described to us, Peter explains. And he explains it through exponential Expositional teaching of the scriptures of Joel 2, 17 through 28. Preaching has always been a part of God's method to the clarification of the gospel. And here we're going to see it. We're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. Now, what I can't do is I can't both teach expositionally of Acts 2, 1 through 21 and unpack Joel 2, 17 through 28. So I'm going to pull out some things we need specifically for our context. Uh, this morning. So let me read just verses 14 through 16. It says, but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, Peter says, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour or 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what uttered this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2. Just for us to know, this is not the entire sermon in Acts 2. It's a summary of it. Obviously, he spoke for more than three minutes that it would take to read his sermon. But here's what's going on. Verse 14, Peter, along with 11, takes his stand. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful, an encouragement for us. We must remember this just 50 few 50 plus days before peter was denying that he even knew the risen christ not once not twice but three times and here 50 days later the only explanation for that kind of radical transformation is something outside of peter and here we know it is the spirit of god the holy spirit coming upon him and let me just say for us the only explanation For change, genuine life change for you and I cannot be ourselves. Paul said, there's nothing good in me but Christ. It must be from the Spirit of God at work in us. The quicker we learn that, the better. Secondly, I am fully on board with anybody, including myself in a few areas that say Christ, when I came to Christ, there were some radical changes that took place. What I'm not comfortable with and what the New Testament writers are never comfortable with is that change comes to you and I instantaneously, radically, from A to Z in a matter of days. Change comes through grace, truth, and time. And time is not a luxury. It is a necessity. It is a grind. And you say, well, why can't God change us faster? Really? It should signal to us what the scripture says because you and I are so sinful, no one changes automatically. And the quicker you come to that, that there is a layer by layer. Peeling of an onion approach to real, genuine, godly, holy change is going to take you more than you ever thought. And looking back on my life, I can tell you this. It has taken more than I ever thought. But I'll tell you this. It is as real as, and better than I ever thought it could be. That was free. Was Peter still fearful? Absolutely. He had seen them kill Jesus, but he knew, if you kill me, Jesus is with me. Because Jesus is with me, I will not die. The scene and confusion of the crowd—some have said a hundred thousand people in the temple court or more—is wild. Verse fifteen, he defends the accusation of the crowd. He says, "We're not drunk. We only had breakfast. You foolish folks." Verse 16, I love this phrase. It says, this is that. This is that. Meaning, this, what you are seeing, all this charismatic activity, is that which the prophet Joel spoke about 800 years ago. Verse 17 and 18 in Joel 2, it mentions the last days. According to the Old Testament, the last days promise it was a promise that the Messiah had come. Here, it is the beginning of the last days. The last days, biblically speaking, are when Christ came the first time, and it's the time period between when Christ comes again. And so here, we have a fulfillment of Joel in the last days that is already. It is the beginning of the last days. Christ has come. He is left. He's coming again, and when he comes again, it will be the The not yet, he hasn't come again, but when he does, it will be the end of the last days. So we have bookends, beginning of the last days here, when Christ returns, the end of the last days. And he uses this phrase on all flesh. It is not on every person, but it does mean on every person who trusts Christ. And again, trusting Christ is when every believer receives the Holy Spirit at that very moment. 2 Corinthians 1 says the Holy Spirit is what has sealed us as a child of God. Without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible for you to be a child of God. But what I want you to notice and what is the main thing here in this section is that who comes to Christ? Who can come to Christ? Not just, look, sons and daughters, young and old. Verse 18, even for slaves and servants can be in the family of God Through the risen Messiah. This is a game changer from the Old Testament to the New Testament. From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And I would suggest for you that you and I could stand up every morning and look in the mirror and say, The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. Amen? The significance of prophecy and vision here in dreams in this context. Now, if I preached Joel 2, it would be different. But the significance of it here in this context is not about the particulars of prophecy, vision, and dreams. It is that in the Old Testament, it was the prophets who got to know God through what? Prophecy, vision, and dreams. And now in the New Testament, how is it that we get to know God? It is through his spirit. Jeremiah 31. Remember that? Those it will make you know God. Verses nineteen through twenty, F. F. Bruce describes these two verses. Says the signs that says the signs that took place at crucifixion was part of the prophecy of Joel. Again, most Old Testament prophecies, when they're given, they have a already, I mean it's already happened, but a not yet. It fulfills two prophecies. That's the way it works. Luke twenty three, though, remember, it's what F. F. Bruce is referring to. The darkening of the sun at Jesus' crucifixion, crucifixion, that's the already it happened. But most of the writers in Revelation speak to very similar physical circumstances on the earth when Jesus comes back a second time. That's the not yet uh, realization of this prophecy. We also know that the day of the Lord is a synonym for the last days, talking about the coming of the Messiah. So again, John Stott does a great job summarizing for us. He says So, what has started at the crucifixion and the resurrection and Pentecost is the start of the last days. And what will happen in the future when Christ returns for his final and second time will be at the end of the last days. And then, lastly, in verse 21, Peter gives a universal offer of salvation that all those who trust in him alone will be saved. The floodgates of salvation have been completely open. Kingdom of God has dawned. There is an end drawing near. We are in the last days. What I love about it is Paul actually quotes in Romans 10... Uh, he, uh, uh, Verse 21, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul says that in Romans 10, but I absolutely, tears ran down my face this week when I read what he adds on to the end of that in Romans 10. He says, Whoever does so, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and whoever does so will not be disappointed. I have been surprised (laughs) at how hard growing Christ is. I have been surprised, shocked even at my own depravity and yours. But not one second for 41 years have I been disappointed that I called on the name of the Lord and was saved. I know I would be dead or in jail. The Lord is kind. This is that, that phrase, this is that, as we live in a time of fullness of God's spirit, he has come to dwell in the hearts of his people who now can know him, and in doing so, as they grow, they will make him known. How do we wrap this up with a so what this morning? That's the fourth point, the Pentecostal production. I'm not talking about a production in the sense of uh, acting or making something. I'm talking about the Pentecostal. What, what does the Spirit of God coming produce? What does it produce? We saw there's no distinctions, no sex, age, rank, but what does it produce? Big picture, it's a metamorphosis. It's a personal character change I cannot tell you it would take years and volumes of books to describe the difference between how I see me God in the world than when I was 19 <laughs> metamorphosis and my character is different I'm much closer to what being what I say and what I do is getting closer ministry certainly for that and mission Three areas this morning. One is to the non-Christian. If you're, look, I'm not going to assume you're a Christian. Statistics say our solid Bible churches are slam full of those who don't know Christ. They've been around Christ. They've been around things of the church. Or they're not sure. And what I would say to you this morning, the first implication, application of this text is to challenge every person here to call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. If you're not sure, this is the moment. Do not waste this moment. I promise you, it is a hard life, but it is a great life, it is a joyful life, and it is not a disappointing life. I'm calling the Lord to be saved. Secondly, here, there's implication for the Christian. I want to be clear, and that is this for a Christian, At the very moment, as I've said, that you come to Christ and you place your trust in Christ alone, the Spirit of God comes, the Scripture New Testament teaches to indwell us permanently. That's called the baptism of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said several places that that we are baptized, what? In one Spirit. One time. Indwelt. That's what makes you a Christian. But... There's another word used of the spirit and it's called filling especially in Ephesians 5. Paul says be filled it's a command it's something that's done over and over that is are you being controlled by the spirit of God? And so what what keeps us from being controlled by the spirit of God? It is sin. When we sin, 1 John 1:9 exhorts us to confess our sins confess them, agree with God that you have done them, and yield again and ask God to control you with his spirit. And what happens over for my own life, 41 years of sinning a million times, confessing a million and one, y'all already got to stay one ahead, right? And continue to yield sometimes with a terrible attitude and surrender to God's word and his spirit That's how change happens. It's normal. Short accounts with God, yielding and surrendering to him. And what does it produce? Galatians 5 tells us God is squeezing us and molding us through this yielding, surrendering process to him through his spirit. And look, the spirit of God is convicting you. But he's producing the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, etc. And then lastly, an option for so what is this. As you grow through that yielding, surrendering process over time, grace, truth, and time, you will get to a point. There's got to be if you're surrendered to the spirit of maturity where you know God and you make him known. And you speak of the glories of the Lord Jesus with whomever would listen to you. That's what we're praying God will do in us as a church and through us this year. That's what, we're, that's what you're saying to the Lord. Lord, I yield. I'm afraid. But I will make you known. Non-Christian. Christian. Making him known. Take a minute. Consider where it might apply to you this morning.
1: Pray with me if you would. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for this precious, precious gift of your spirit. Thank you for your word that records this gift for us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not only understand, but certainly apply. Um, what we're told about the activity of the Spirit to our lives. We want to have a tender heart toward you. We want to be attentive to all that your Spirit would show us. So we ask you today and every day after, we ask for your help. He's our helper. So, Lord, would you do that good work in us as individuals, but also, Lord, as a community of faith, as the church pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.